John chapter 9, we'll begin at verse 1. The blind see, but the seeing are blind. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me, as long as it is day, night is coming, when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated, sent. And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. Therefore they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees him who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Again, therefore, the Pharisees also were asking him how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. They said, therefore, to the blind man again, What do you say about him, since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews, therefore, did not believe it of him, that he had been blind and had received sight, until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight, and questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He shall speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So a second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He said, Therefore, He answered, therefore, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. They said, therefore, to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? And they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? And they put him out. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, And who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. 
And he said, Lord, I believed. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to know. We pray, Lord, that that's true of each of us, our children, our grandchildren, our friends, even, Lord, our foes, whoever they may be, that know us and have heard the true gospel from us. We pray first that we would be saved, but especially that those around us who have heard the truth, that they might be saved. May we understand from this word, from your scriptures, that this is necessary for you to open the eyes for salvation to occur. May we also, Father, be able to preach and argue against those who would undermine this true gospel and the, and the true sequence of events and the true understanding of the human heart and condition. May we also, Father, have the courage to preach against and speak against those who detract, deflect, throw out decoys to the truth, who refuse to believe. May that not shake our faith, but may we, Lord, have a ready refutation for their petty objections. Teach us, Father, these things. Grant us, Lord, your spirit to lead and guide us into all truth. In the name of Christ, amen. From last time we saw that this man was born blind. His parents had disowned him. They disowned him so much that he became a beggar. Can you imagine that? Having a blind son but not providing for him throughout his life and into adulthood, but leaving him to manage on his own as a beggar. These parents are also ones who disowned him when the Pharisees were threatening to put out people from the synagogue, from the local assembly of believers, to put him out of the synagogue and put them out of the synagogue, anybody who confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior, Son of Man, Son of God. This is what they did. They disowned him in that way. The Pharisees, they continue to disown him in our passage. The Pharisees wanted nothing to do with this blind beggar, now healed, this poor man, now teaching them, now testifying to them what actually happened in his life in relation to the miraculous work of Jesus Christ. They wanted to disown him, reject him, have nothing to do with him. Because both parents and the Pharisees their fundamental problem, the fundamental problem was they did not have eyes to see and ears to hear. And to exacerbate that, they were not even willing to consider the truth. Both the parents and the Pharisees were unwilling to consider the truth spoken by a lowly, mean, meager pauper, this blind beggar who is now healed. They were unwilling to listen to that source for truth of what actually happened to him and what he came to know and believe. They refused. This is what commonly happens. Commonly, the truth will be proclaimed and then a distinction will be made in the hearers. There will be a few who believe, but the majority will disbelieve. Some will believe, some are chosen to believe, some eyes will be opened, and other eyes will remain dark and become even darker. Dark and remain even darker. The analogy might be akin to closing our eyes at night when it's dark all around, and we know that it is very dark because our eyes are closed for one reason, but also because the light around us is dark. If we close our eyes at daytime, 
it wouldn't seem so dark. We could still see that there is some light out there in the daytime, right? Even if we have closed eyes. That is known or somewhat felt in the daytime, especially the noonday sun. That's what's going on with the Pharisees and the parents. The Pharisees and the parents, they had blindness, spiritual blindness, that was evidenced in the noonday sun. But now it's becoming darker blindness because Jesus and this blind man have preached to them and they are refusing to believe. So their darkness is even darker than it was before. This is what Jesus means by his parable at the very end of the chapter. Let's now see more carefully what happens here. Verse 24, a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. The Pharisees in their council, council with other Pharisees and Sadducees likely, the priests and the scribes, the priests and the lay scholars, the Pharisees being the lay scholars, they call this blind man again to their assembly, to their council, in order to interrogate him. We might wonder, why did they want to interrogate him again if they did so sufficiently the first time? Were they wanting to repent? No. They were not wanting to repent, but what they were wanting was for this man, this healed man, to buckle, to waver, and to have a different testimony the second time so that they could use that different testimony, a contradictory testimony from the first time, to use it against him and against Christ. This is what evildoers do. They will ask the question, not just once, and get a clear answer the first time. They will ask a second, a third, a fourth, innumerable times from us as believers. They will ask us these questions. They ask that of pastors many times because not because they want to understand, but because they want the Christians or pastors specifically to buckle, to change, to, to mitigate and, and do something like that to justify the wickedness of the people who are asking. That's what they do here. Look at the pretension also associated with it in verse 24. Give glory to God. They are actually putting him under oath, calling on God's name, and telling him that they want him to give glory to God. Meaning, confess the truth as to what's going on, because when you confess the truth, then you will confess that you have been sinning, that you have been lying, you have been deceiving, you have been stealing, you've been doing this or that. It's not really true. What you told us the first time is not really true. So if now you confess, now you tell us, then we can hold you accountable for misleading us the first time. And if we practice righteous judgment against you for lying to us, and we punish you, God will get glory. That's what they mean by give glory to God. How do we know so? In the book of Joshua, book of Joshua, chapter 7, Joshua 7, there was a man named Achan who stole some possessions from the city of Jericho. He was not supposed to do so. And because he did so, Israel in their next battle, they lost it. They lost it. Joshua pleads with God for an answer. Why did this happen? And God tells him that there is a man, someone who has stolen some possessions and he deserves to be punished. So when Joshua finally is able to identify the man to single him out from the whole nation, we pick it up at verse 19. Verse 19, then Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Then the man, Achan, he confesses and then he's punished, punished by death, the death penalty. He and his household, the death penalty. But we see in Joshua 7, 19, 
Giving glory to God has to do with making an open confession in a court setting, in a setting where you will be held accountable for perjury if you don't tell the truth. That that's what they want him to do in the name of God. So the Pharisees take God's name in vain, put this faithful witness in jeopardy. They're doing the opposite of Joshua to Achan because the blind man was telling the truth. But they're so audacious, the Pharisees are so audacious, so arrogant and proud that they have no restraint to use the name of God to put an innocent man in jeopardy, all the while saying, give glory to God. We know that they have malicious intent because of the following phrase, we know that this man is a sinner. In 9.24, we know that this man is a sinner? Really? When did you present, when did you confront him for his sin? When did you demonstrate that he sinned? That Jesus sinned. And what would the sin be? Healing a blind man on the Sabbath day. And expecting the blind man to go to the pool of Siloam and to wash and be healed. That was the sin. Remember we saw last time that this could not be a sin. Because the miracle that occurred accompanied by sound doctrine was a good miracle accompanied by the truth, sound doctrine. And if it happened on the Sabbath day, it had to have happened by the power of God himself, the God of heaven, who would not tolerate breaking his own Sabbath day. Correct? So we have those three things. A good miracle, a a sound doctrine, and the power of God at work on the Sabbath day. So Jesus could not have sinned. Even the blind man could not have sinned when Jesus instructed him to go to to Siloam and wash. None of that was sin. And yet, they assert, without a basis, we know that this man is a sinner. False. Now, with this kind of ominous and serious situation... What does the blind man that now healed, what does he do? Remember, he is probably ignorant. He's probably heard the word of God here or there, but he's probably not formally educated. Certainly he's a pauper. He's poor. He was blind. Nobody respected him because he was a beggar on the street side, right? So he's got nothing, no reputation to present to them And he is surrounded by all of these scholars interrogating him, putting him under oath, calling Jesus a sinner, and accusing the blind man to to be in cahoots with a sinner. What does he do? And think about what would we have done in that kind of a situation with the authorities interrogating us to this extent. Let's see what he does. Verse 25, he therefore answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. The man is telling the truth. He's telling the truth because he knows at the very least that he's a prophet, right? But there's no way that Jesus would have been uh, a a wicked sinner. There's no way. He doesn't really know but he suspects that he is a prophet. He thinks he is a prophet. He's announced that earlier. The first time he went to this council or courtroom, he says he is a prophet. Verse 17. They asked him and he said he is a prophet. He knows that for sure, but he does not know this man well enough to be able to say he is a sinner or not. He's putting that question out There or suspending the answer to that because he doesn't want the focus to be on what that what happened there with or who Jesus was. He doesn't know fully yet. He won't know fully until verses 35 to 41. That's when he believes Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And that's when he worships him. Not until that point are we at verse 25. 
So at, by verse 25, he says, I don't know. I cannot give you all the facts of that matter. But I can give you the fact of this matter. One thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. That's indisputable. He's speaking with full conviction here. He knows the way he used to be. The way he used to be was indisputable in his own mind, in his own life, and even in the life of his parents and his neighbors and all the strangers who would ever give him money being a blind beggar. Right? It's indisputable. He knows that that was true. He was blind, now he sees. Of course, he's talking in the physical sense. We could also say that in the spiritual sense because the spiritual analogy should not be missing to us, especially by the last paragraph, verses 35 to 41. By that point, Jesus is clearly showing, he's illustrating that he heals men of their physical illnesses to illustrate a spiritual illness that must be rectified in them. That is the point. In the same way with us. When people dispute us, when people interrogate us and persecute us, we ought to tell them, you know, you know, sir, you know, ma'am, you know, father, you know, mother, you know, brother, you know, sister, you know, son, you know, daughter, the way I used to be. Do you want me to be that way again? Isn't it better the, the way I am now? If it is better the way I am now, why are you rising up against me, slandering me, gossiping, maligning me to others and to my face? It should not happen. I'm better now than I was before. That's what the blind man says. Indisputably, that's the case. Verse 26, they said therefore to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They already know. Now what are they trying to do? They're trying to get him to slip up on the facts. They're trying to give him an opportunity to contradict himself. Well, it wasn't on a Sabbath day. Well, he didn't say Salome. He said this other pool. Well, he didn't actually put clay on my eyes. He just spit on, in his hand and, and it wiped the saliva on my eyes. They want him to get something wrong, something amiss to use against him. They're not asking for the truth. They're asking him to slip up, to re remember wrongly, or to even overtly tell a lie. But he doesn't do it. They have malicious intent the whole time. He is courageously, sincerely, honestly telling them the truth, which is the way it always happens. Verse 27, he answered them, I told you already. So instead of getting into the weeds with them, he simply says, I told you already. You know. He doesn't play their game. He says, and you did not listen. I don't need to repeat myself. You know it already. I told you already. The problem is, you won't listen. You won't listen means not that they won't hear the words, but they won't act in accordance with those words of truth. You won't listen, meaning you won't obey what I'm telling you. You won't act properly based on what I tell you. Why do you want to hear it again? Now he's goading them. Now this one who is the underdog in this fight... This healed blind man, right? He, this underdog in the fight. Why do you want to hear it again? Now he's going to turn the tables on them and goad them. He's going to poke them with the comment, verse 27. You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? Are you wanting to know because you're actually curious? Are you wanting to know because you might believe? You want to believe? He's telling them, this is not the case, but I'm throwing that out there. I want your ears to hear it because 
You think you're going to stop me. You're not going to stop me. I know what I believe. I know what has happened to me. And so he's throwing it back on them to shame them as possibly being disciples of Christ. But then they, they don't play the game either. Verse 28. And they reviled him and said. They reviled him or they ridiculed him. They slander him and they say, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. What's the problem? What's the problem? They are making Christ and Moses enemies. They are assuming that whatever Christ preached was contrary to Moses, or whatever Moses had preached and written is contrary to Christ. They make the false assumption that Moses and Christ are against each other. Actually, they're not the only ones who do that. This has been a plague in the history of the church, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. This has been a plague that people want to make a contradiction between Christ and Moses, between the New Testament and the Old Testament, between the law and grace. People are always doing that. The, the Pharisees also did so, but we can't have that be. Jesus already answered them on this matter. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 45. John five forty-five to 47. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? On the day of judgment, Moses is going to accuse these unbelievers. They put their hope in Moses, but Moses is going to accuse them because he's going to tell them, you didn't believe what I wrote. You say you believe what I wrote, but you don't truly believe what I wrote. And what would it be? Verses 46 and 47. What was it that Moses wrote? If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Which means Moses and Christ are in harmony. Moses and Christ agree. Whatever Moses wrote, he wrote of Christ. He didn't write merely a history. He didn't write merely laws or merely judicial laws for a nation. He didn't write merely of sacrifices and animal sacrifices. He didn't write merely of future events. People like to look at Moses that way. Even the Pharisees like to look at Moses that way and exclude the main point of why Moses wrote. He wrote of Christ. From Genesis to Malachi, Christ is all over the place in the Old Testament, especially in Moses, from Genesis to Deuteronomy. He wrote of Christ. If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? If you think the words of Christ are right and good, then why won't you believe Moses? If you think the words of Moses are right and good, then why won't you believe Christ? The, the two are one and the same. They have the same message. One way of salvation in anticipation in Moses' writings of the coming death and resurrection of Christ and then in fulfillment in the New Testament with the apostles that whatever was prophesied by Moses and the prophets has been accomplished. Jesus has died and he has risen again for our sins. So, no one can make and should make a distinction between Moses and Christ in reference to Moses' message and Christ's message. They are one and the same message. One way of salvation in Christ. So, though they say, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses, they're not telling the truth. They are liars and making false distinctions. 29. 
We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. They say they know that God has spoken to Moses. True, God did speak to Moses. This has been one of the most indisputable facts of history, that God spoke to Moses. Jews, even currently Jews, the vast majority of them believe God spoke to Moses. Christians throughout history, the vast majority of them believe that God spoke to Moses. So that is not in dispute. Even Mohammedans, Mohammedans and Hindus and others, they believe God spoke to Moses. But in common with all those people, they don't really believe what Moses said. They know God spoke to him, but they don't really believe in the fundamental message of Moses, which is Christ. None of these people believe in that. But as for this man, we do not know where he is from. They don't know where Christ is from. How is that possible? How is it possible they didn't know where Christ is from? They cannot and could not prove that he sinned. They cannot and could not prove that his miracles came from Satan. They cannot prove and could not prove that whatever he taught was contrary to Moses and the prophets. They couldn't do that at all. Correct? They couldn't find him sinning in any way. Correct? He didn't steal from people, did he? He didn't murder anybody, did he? He didn't worship an idol, did he? He didn't commit illicit sexual sin, did he? Jesus didn't do anything like that. So how is it possible that they say, we do not know where he is from? Certainly, they have to conclude, at the very least, like the man did in 917, that he's a prophet. He's a prophet like John the Baptist. They were willing to acknowledge that he was a prophet. Why not Jesus Christ? When John pointed them to Jesus as a prophet. Now they have to say, John, John was wrong on Jesus. You see, it's impossible for them to make this statement, we do not know where he is from. They have to be making this statement with deceit and with a complete spiritual blindness for them to assert that. We do know where he is from. In John 7, 28. John 7, 28. He says, Jesus therefore cried out in the temple teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. So, the factuality of the matter is actually on the side of Jesus, not the Pharisees. The Pharisees say, we do not know where he is from, but Jesus already said in John 7, you do know where I am from. If you had an ounce of truth in you, an ounce of honesty in you, you would openly say, we know you are from God. You are a prophet of God. You would have said that. But their sin consumes them so much, they won't admit that. Their pride consumes them so much, they won't admit it. And they lie to the blind man healed. Verse 30. The man doesn't put up with it. He knows what they're doing. Verse 30. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. You can, you can tell this man is not letting them deceive him, not letting them manipulate him, not letting uh, them coerce him. He throws it back on them. Look at just the way he says it. Well, here is an amazing thing. They want to revile and mock him for being disciples of Christ, while they supposedly are disciples of Moses, but then he throws the mockery back on them. 
They mock him, but he mocks them and says, here, Well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. How is it possible, after Jesus has ministered for some time and performed many miracles, preached to the multitudes, spoken the truth, been an open book to them for a while, that they have not had the ability to investigate and to bring forth the honest truth about who this Jesus of Nazareth was and is? How is it that they didn't do that? Especially since he's healing dumb or mute people who could not speak, people who are deaf could not hear, people who were dead and now are alive, and now this man born blind from birth. How is it that the Pharisees have not investigated this? They are the religious authorities of the nation. They are the religious teachers. They are the officials. Everybody's supposed to consult them. So why do you not know? Don't you have enough men to investigate? They have about 70 of them in leadership. Can't they just commission two or three? Form a committee, a subcommittee, and go and investigate this Jesus of Nazareth? Go collect the evidence and report back to the rest of the council? They couldn't do that? So he's exposing them for being frauds. They're not really concerned about truth. They're not really concerned about the people. They are concerned about themselves and their own reputation. Verse 31. He presses them on this. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Right and true. God does not hear, meaning answers, the prayers of sinners. God does not answer the prayers of sinners. What kind of sinners did he have in mind? He meant unrepentant sinners. He did not mean curious sinners, repentant sinners. He did not mean that. He meant unrepentant sinners. God does not hear or answer the prayer of unrepentant sinners. But if someone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. He hears repentant sinners. He hears curious sinners, those who want to know the truth. And along the way, at one point or another, until they are saved, he hears their prayers. That's what he meant. We know he meant this. We know he meant this. For example, from Psalm 145. Psalm 145 and verses 17 and following. 17 to 21. Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. People who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call upon him in truth. Verse 19, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He hears their cries for help. That's a repentant sinner. He hears them, but he won't hear unrepentant sinners. In the New Testament, let's notice an example of this from Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman centurion, a Roman official or soldier who had under him 100 soldiers. So he was a commander of 100 soldiers. A Gentile, not a Jew. It says of Cornelius in chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, verse 1. We'll read 1 to 4. 
Now there was a certain man of Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in to him and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze upon him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. His prayers and alms ascended as a memorial before God. He's commended in verse 2. Devout, feared God with his household, gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. He's commended for those virtues. Those aren't evil things in and of themselves. Those are good things. But the question is, was Cornelius a believer when he did so? Or is he in this category of a curious sinner or repentant sinner? Is he desiring to know the true God or not? We have to put him in this category, similar to the blind man in John 9. Cornelius and the blind man in John 9 are in the same category. They are not yet saved, but they will be saved. And therefore, God hears their prayers, their desires, their pleas. How do we know he was not saved yet? Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. In the meantime, between Acts 10 and Acts 11, Peter the Apostle preaches to Cornelius and his household. They believe the gospel. They are saved. How do we know that's the sequence? That Peter had to preach for him and his household to be saved by believing the preached message. We pick it up in chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 13. 13 and 14. Acts eleven thirteen, And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he shall speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. The key is that Simon Peter will preach words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. That means that in Acts 10, 1 to 4, Cornelius wasn't saved. Just like the blind man so far is not saved. He'll be saved by the end of John 9. And in the same way, when Cornelius hears the true gospel from Simon Peter, the apostle, Cornelius believes and then he is saved, and also his household. Back to John 9. John 9. This is what the man meant in verse 31. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does His will, He hears him. 32. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. That's true. If we read throughout the Old Testament, there has been no one healed of blindness from birth. Yes, in 2 Kings 6, Elisha, the prophet, blinded the men and then opened their eyes temporarily when they were adults. They were soldiers. He blinded them and then opened their eyes temporarily. Things like that have happened. But a man born blind from birth and healed in such a way it has never happened. So with such an astonishing miracle, why did the Pharisees not investigate properly? Why did it, did it not subdue their proud heart enough to investigate properly with sincerity and honesty? 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing which is a proper summary of what we've been saying. Jesus healed many people. He did good to them. Right? Jesus preached sound doctrine. And Jesus 
had the power of God that was manifested through him both on the Sabbath day and on other days. And how would God approve of it? How would it be a sin if God gave him that power on the Sabbath day? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Very true. And the Pharisees are being shamed now by this man, by him telling them the truth. He successfully refutes the religious teachers, which should encourage us. There are many false teachers out there. If you are equipped with the knowledge of the truth from Holy Scripture, you will be able to refute all of their speculations, all of their false doctrines. It is possible. It doesn't matter. You don't need to be formally educated. You don't need to know Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. You just need to know this holy word of God from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. If you know what it says and you hear something contrary to it, you have access to this word and now you have a pocket computer and you can find any verse you're looking for that you don't remember its address in the Bible. You can find it very quickly and you can present those verses to the people contradicting God's word because they undermine the gospel and need to be refuted. You have that access. We were not born blind. We have been educated, at least in English we've been educated, or Spanish, right? We've been educated some. We have the ability to read, and we know what's going on around us. So if the blind man could do this, certainly you and I are able to do this. They, however... Don't budge. Verse 34. Not only do they not budge, they exacerbate their own sin, the Pharisees. They exacerbate, they heap more guilt on their own sins. Verse 34. They answered and said to him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? Do you see what they do? Because he's not a man of reputation, and they are men of reputation, at least worldly reputation. They have it, he does not. They assert, you were born entirely in sins and are you teaching us? Either in a previous life, according to their understanding or pagan understanding, this man sinned, that's why he was born blind. Or while he was in the womb, he sinned and that's why he was born blind. For one of those two reasons, or both reasons, the Pharisees accuse him of this, being entirely born in sins. They're not talking about original sin, because that would be true of all of us. They're talking about an actual sin, personal sin, that he committed either in the womb or in a previous life. Transmigration or reincarnation. For one or both of those reasons, they accuse him of this to dismiss him. They refuse. They slander him till the end, and then they separate. They put him out. They put him out. This is a a Johannine expression. John the Apostle, he uses this expression here in the book of John. John 9, verse 22. If anyone should confess him to be Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. So to be put out means to be put out of the local assembly, the local assembly of worship, the synagogue to be put out. So 34, they put him out. Verse 35, they had put him out. Put out of the synagogue. And if you're put out of the synagogue, you're considered a Gentile and a tax collector. If you're put out of the synagogue, there's a curse on you. If you're put out of the synagogue, you're delivered over to the world and to Satan. You're going to face eternal punishment if you're put out of the synagogue. That's what they believed would happen to those who were put out of the synagogue. And for what crime? For what crime? Was he a mass murderer? Was he a serial adulterer? Was he a serial thief? Did he worship idols? Did he dishonor his parents? Did did, did he do anything like that? No, he did nothing like that. 
They couldn't prove anything wrong, prove anything wrong with him, but they put him out anyways. This is what wicked people do. Wicked people in authority seek to jettison and throw out the righteous. In 3 John, 3 John, verses 9 and 10, this happens again. 3 John 9 and 10, wicked men in authority throw out the true believers. Second, or 3 John, 3 John, verse 9. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does unjustly, accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, neither does he himself receive the brethren, and he forbids those who desire to do so, and puts them out of the church. Puts them out of the church. He was in authority, and he would not put up with the true believers, but in fact, throughout the true believers from the local church. But that doesn't matter as long as we have Christ. And that's what the man has. Now John 9, 35 to 41. He has Christ. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He finds him because he heard, because once that announcement has been made, it would spread quickly in the community, and Jesus hears of it, he finds him. Jesus goes and finds one of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Just like John chapter 10, I have other sheep. I must bring them also. Remember John 10, 16, I have other sheep, I must bring them also. Well, this one sheep is within Israel. Other sheep are outside of Israel, such as you and I. So, he finds him, do you believe in the Son of Man? He asks him a direct question. The Son of Man. The Son of Man is taken from both Psalm 8 and Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Psalm 8 and Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Especially from, well, actually in both passages, Psalm 8 and Daniel 7, if we read those passages carefully, it is quite evident that the Son of Man is a glorious, divine figure. He is glorious and divine, and He is Christ. The Jews, some of them, knew that Psalm 8 and Daniel 7 spoke of the coming Christ. They knew that. And they also knew that he deserved to be worshipped. This man, who's now healed, he knew of those truths. That's why Jesus asked him directly. We know that Jesus' favorite expression of himself in the third person was to call himself the Son of Man. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Which means he possesses a human nature and a divine nature worthy of worship. This is evident in Psalm 8 and especially Daniel 7. Son of Man means he has a human nature, perfect, and a divine nature in one person who is worthy of worship. That short phrase means all that. 36, he answered and said, And who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Who is he? I want to know. 37, Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. You have both seen him, and he is the one talking with you. This dialogue reminds us of John 4. John 4, 25 to 26, where we also have a lowly and mean individual, a woman, a woman of Samaria, because she also was despised among the people. John 4, 25 to 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. In the same way, 
chapter 9, Jesus says so. And the response, John 9, 38. And he said, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. The Son of Man was to die and rise again. The Son of Man was to have a human and divine nature. The Son of Man was to be glorious and return in the clouds with power and great glory. The Son of Man was to have an eternal kingdom. And He was to provide salvation for the people. So He says, Lord, I believe. All of those truths were brought together in His life at one moment when He had face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ. Lord, I believe. He knew that all of those truths were to come together in one person, but he never knew who that one person was. He never met that one person until this time. In, in the terms of knowing that this is the one who fulfills all the promises and prophecies of the Christ. Now he did. And what does he do? He worshipped him. He worshipped him. This word worship, in context, this context means worship. It doesn't mean he paid respects to him or anything like that. It means he worshipped him. That was John's point in bringing up this word in this context. Because John, throughout this book, from chapter after chapter after chapter, he has been proving the deity of Christ. He proved it from the first verse of the book. He does it from beginning to end, and this is one example. This man believed that Jesus was the Christ, therefore he worshipped him. Now, 39 to 41. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. For judgment I came into this world. What does he mean by this? Does Jesus mean, I came into the world for the day of judgment, meaning to execute the events of the day of judgment? No. He means that I came into the world to make a distinction between those who see and those who are blind. To make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. I came to make that kind of a judgment, that kind of a discernment or to show the sentence on one individual in contrast to another individual. I came to make this kind of distinctive judgment. That's what he asserted when he says, For judgment I came into this world. Jesus came into the world for that reason, and he commissioned us with the same purpose. He commissioned us with the same purpose. Purpose. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 17. 2 Corinthians 2, 14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. When Christ is preached, he's a fragrance or an aroma that produces two results. The two results, either the people who hear it, smell it, and it's death in them, and it produces more death. They are doubly dead, because they not only were dead originally, but now that they've heard the truth and rejected it, now they are doubly dead. They are held more accountable for hearing the clear truth. But to others who love that word, when they hear that word, or when they smell the aroma to them, They've already been saved, so they have life in them, and they love it, and they want to know more of it. They want to hear more of it, 
and it produces more life in them. That is, they are converted and then they are further consecrated or sanctified in the ways of God. That word produces more life in them, more fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's the way of the preaching of the gospel. It has those two distinctions. It does that work every time the truth is proclaimed. So Jesus, using a parable, using an illustration, a metaphor, in verse 39 says, He came that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. What does that mean? Those who do not see may see. Well, the physically blind man who now sees is merely an illustration of what happened in that blind man's soul. He, it says, he did not see spiritually. Now he sees spiritually. By the end of this chapter, he sees spiritually. He did not see spiritually. Now he sees spiritually. On the other hand, those who think they see spiritually are becoming more blinded. Those who claim to see spiritually, the Pharisees and other self-righteous people who trust in their own works, those who claim to see spiritually, when they hear the truth, their blindness is exacerbated. Their blindness is double. They are now doubly dead. God gives them over to a depraved mind. Romans 1, 24. He gives them over. They were dead, they were blind, but now they become more blind. They pursue their sin even more. He means that by this parable, those who see may become blind. He means those who claim to see may become more blind. How do we know he means that? Verses 40 to 41. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind to, are we? Are you saying that about us? Are you saying that about us? Jesus had another opportunity to mitigate, to walk back his statements, to say, No, 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 sirs, I, I misspoke. I misspoke. You know how politicians and others do. When they get caught, they mitigate and they backtrack. Jesus could have done that because the Pharisees are right there, some of them. And we are not blind to, are we? Jesus said to them, to these ones who raised this objection, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, there's the key phrase, since you say, we see, your sin remains. If you were blind, you would have no sin. That's an illustration of this blind man who was spiritually blind. Now he sees. Because God, the Holy Spirit, was working in that blind man's heart, not only his physical eyes, but his spiritual eyes, to convert him from being spiritually blind to spiritually Seeing. If you were blind, you would have no sin. Meaning, you would be forgiven of your sins, in fact, if that happened, which it did in the blind man. But you people, since you say we see, I'm a Christian, I know, don't tell me that, I already believe, I have had enough preachers come, I've had enough people knock on my door, you, enough people have passed out tracts to me. Don't tell me. I already know. I see. I believe. That's the attitude they have many times, is it not? Don't tell me what I already know. But since you say we see, people with that disposition toward hearing the truth, their sin remains. They, in fact, should be saying, friend, I'm glad you passed this tract out to me. Where do you go to church? When did, how did God save you? When did that happen? How did that happen? Let me explain also what happened to me. We need to make sure we stay in contact. And if we live close enough, let's, let's go to the same church. Or my church is a bad one. Let, tell me about yours. 
That's the kind of interaction that should happen if two true believers meet each other, right? Not, I see already, so don't tell me anymore. I know already, don't tell me, right? People with that attitude, like these Pharisees, your sin remains. What does he mean by that? Your sin remains. He means, John 8, 24. I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. You're going to die in your sins. Die, go to hell on that day of judgment with eternal punishment. If you have that attitude manifested in your spoken words, that's proof that your sin remains. You will die in your sins. Or according to Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, because the Pharisees were doing so, Mark 3, 28 to 30. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Our sins should not remain. Let's not be proud and reject any notion that we need to be forgiven of sin by believing in Jesus Christ. Let's believe in him. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.